Hey, let's, let's pray. Lord God, thank you that, uh, well, that you love us as we are. And we pray that we would love you as you are. You are good. But we're not always so good, and we are not a good judge of good. But Lord God, you are a good judge of us. So would you come with your word and judge the hell out of us and judge your heaven right into us? Be glorified in us, Lord God. We pray that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. For almost a year, we've been preaching a series called Jesus Stories through the Synoptic uh, Gospels, uh, stories from the life of, of Christ. And this morning, I'd like to make a transition uh, from, from Jesus' stories to stories that Jesus told. Uh, he called them parables. Matthew 16, verses one through four. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they're gonna judge the judgment, to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven, a sign from the sky. Now, heaven and sky are the, are the same word. Uh, so they're asking for a sign out of the sky. Jesus answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and, and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The Sadducees and Pharisees, that is the religious experts on signs, ask Jesus for a sign, which is profoundly ironic on, on a whole bunch of levels. For one, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And the disciples just collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Uh, 12, you, you know, is the number of Israel, and five is the number of the Torah. Then Jesus leaves Israel, and he goes to Gentile territory, where he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. And this time, the di disciples, they pick up seven large baskets of leftovers. Four is the number of the four winds, and seven is the number of all creation. Jesus is the bread of life for all nations, the whole world. And his ministry is drenched in signs. But now, back in Israel, the religious leaders can't read them. Or maybe they don't want to to, to read them. So they ask for a sign from, more accurately, literally, out of the sky. That's like saying, Jesus, hand us the moon. Hand us the moon. Jesus responds, look at, this, look at the sunrise. Look at the, the red sunrise, the red sunset. The, the whole sky is a sign, and you can't read it. The whole sky is a sign, and you want a piece of the sign? Why? Why? You know, sometimes if you seize control of a sign like this one, you grab it, you seize control of this sign, well, you can make the sign point in just the opposite direction that it was meant to. Or you can take a sign like this, seize control of it, cut it up, tape it back together, and make it mean uh, something, something like this. I mean, gosh, you could, you could grab like a love letter, cut it up, rearrange the letters, and turn it into a, into a ransom note, for instance. Show us a sign out of the sky, they say. You know, this is what the ancients referred to 
as a blood moon. It's a lunar eclipse. The moon turns red for the same reason that the sky turns red at sunset or, or sunrise. Well, in Joel 2.31, the prophet Joel wrote this, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In the Revelation, at the opening of the sixth seal, the sun goes black and the moon becomes like blood, as if the moon bleeds. On the news, you may have heard of the recent series of four blood moons. It began on April 15th last year, and the fourth and the tetrad comes on September 28th of this year. So some religious leaders have said Jesus is coming back on that date. But because Jesus said no one knows that date, other religious leaders have said, well, something's going to happen, and it has to do with Israel, because two of the moons fall on, on uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, so support Israel by giving to my ministry or voting for this candidate, or something bad could happen, like the tribulation, and Jesus could come back. Last week, the Huffington Post ran this headline, Michelle Bachman, the rapture is coming and it's Obama's fault. <laughs> now, I, I read it and I listened and Michelle Bachman didn't actually say that, but she did imply something like that and she made some valid points. But this is my question, what does it all mean? Is it good or bad to have Jesus come back? I mean. Vote Democrat, make Jesus, I don't know. I, uh, should I vote uh, Republican? Should I vote Democrat? And let me tell you, hear me well, it's not just Michelle Bachman that will be taking signs out of the sky as we move into this election cycle. Not just Michelle Bachman that'll be taking signs out of the sky and telling you what they mean. It's really important that you understand reading the, when you're reading the scriptures that the Sadducees were the liberal elite, the ruling liberal elite of Jesus' day. And the Pharisees were the popular conservative leaders of Jesus' day. They didn't get along with each other, like at all, except in this. Together, they come to Jesus and they ask for a sign out of the sky. And together they entice Israel to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Both groups claim to be experts on the law and the signs. You know, I find it fascinating that someone in the Bible tells us exactly what the blood moon means. And he's not an expert. He's a fisherman. And his name is Peter. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fills, fills the tabernacle that, that we now call the church, and they all start worshiping in the languages of the nations, Peter stands up and he says this. He says, this, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing here, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, this, this thing you're seeing, this is that. And he seems to believe that they all saw what Joel prophesied. That's, that's how his, what he says makes sense, that they saw the sun turn black. It happened at noon on the day Jesus was crucified until 3 p.m. that same day. And there was a blood moon. 
Using Kepler's laws of motion and computer calculations, astronomers now point out that there was one and only one lunar eclipse on a Passover Sabbath while Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. It happened on April 3rd, 33 AD. Now, there are many other reasons to believe that Jesus was crucified on that day, even including seismic data from the Jordan Rift Valley. Well, you see, that means that the witnesses to Jesus' death saw the sun turn black that day, and they saw a blood moon that night. The sun went black from noon to three when Jesus died, and according to the astronomers, the moon rose that night in full eclipse. The eclipse began below the horizon at 3 p.m. as Jesus cried, it is finished, and delivered up his spirit, the life-giving spirit. Now just think about that. All the experts saw the signs, but none of them knew what they meant, at least not yet. They crucified Jesus as the moon moved into the shadow of this earth. They crucified Jesus because they didn't want the light. They didn't like what he meant. You you know, he loved his enemies. He forgave his enemies. He loved the last and the least of these, and he refused to support the violent political aspirations of the nation-state of Israel. Why? Because that is not how his kingdom comes, and he is the king of Israel and all things. Well, they all saw Jesus and then took his life on the tree because they didn't like what he meant. Jesus said to the Sadducees and Pharisees, you you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I think it's interesting that when Matthew records Jesus' words, he uses the Greek word kairos. In Greek, there are two words for time. Chronos, from, from where we get words like chronology, and the other word, kairos. Chronos is like the squares in my calendar. And kairos is like the stuff written in each square. Events, appointments, people. Kronos is like empty time. Kairos is like time filled with, with meaning. The Sadducees and Pharisees had all sorts of calendars, but they didn't know what anything meant. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is Jesus Christ crucified, descended into Sheol like Jonah, and risen from the dead on the third day. Maybe if we got that sign, we could read all the other signs. Well, Jesus says only the sign of Jonah, and he leaves them and departs across the sea with his disciples, verse five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This week at our staff Bible study, Kimberly and Angie reminded us of what leaven does. It it, it puffs up bread with gas. 
Now, I would never say this, but Kimberly said this. She said, Peter, it's literally um, yeast farts, okay? So anyway, that's what she said. I can't believe it. But, but then she quoted 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. This knowledge, writes Paul, knowledge of the law, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Sadducees and Pharisees puffed themselves up with this knowledge. They were experts in the law, and so they made some, themselves they, they made themselves bigger with nothing but emptiness. And the snake said to the woman, take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be like God. Puff yourself up. 1 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul, the former Pharisee, continues, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In the Bible, you see, there are two ways of knowing. Number one, you can take knowledge, and number two, you can be known. Well, the Sadducees and Pharisees take knowledge to gain control, but you have to surrender control to be known by love and know love. The Sadducees and Pharisees puff themselves up with, with nothing, but to be known by love is to be filled with something, and God is that something. Now, just hold on to those thoughts, all right? Verse five, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, but um, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing this among yourselves, the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you yet get it? Don't you perceive? You, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I love that scene in the Gospels, and it reminds me of this scene in Guardians of the Galaxy. I have a plan. I have a plan. Stace, you're yammering and relieve us from this person confinement. Yeah, I'll have to agree with the walking thesaurus on that one. Do not ever call me a thesaurus. It's just a metaphor, dude. His people are completely literal. Metaphors are gonna go over his head. Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. I'm gonna die surrounded by the biggest idiots in the galaxy. I wonder if Jesus ever said that to himself. I'm gonna die surrounded by the biggest idiots in the galaxy. And yet he was with them in their boat knowing them in their empty illusions. They just saw Jesus feed Israel and all the nations. They've just crossed the abyss in a boat with the bread of life, and they're worried about bread. Jesus says, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they say, right, gotcha. But we don't have any bread. Bread of life. We don't have any bread. And Jesus says, guys, I'm not talking about bread. And yet, he is talking about bread. And leaven, the whole thing 
is a metaphor, a parabole in Greek. That, that is, the leaven and the bread are not just leaven and bread. And neither are the fish, just fish, or the baskets, or the boat, or the sea, or the crowds, or the Sadducees, or the Pharisees, or the fact that they forgot to bring bread. You know, as we preach through all these Jesus stories, I do hope you see that Jesus seemed to believe that nothing happened to him by accident. His life was a story that God was telling, and he was using all creation to do so. He believed that nothing happened to him by accident, and nothing happens to you by accident. Actually, Scripture is clear that, that you are a story that God is telling with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, including you and your story, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, and we have beheld His glory, and then we nailed Him to a tree in the garden because we didn't like the story. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Just let me point out that Jesus seemed to believe that we are like living in a parable. That means that all creation is a sign, a, a metaphor. So, so why, do, why do we speak in metaphors? Well, if I say a thought went over your head, I'm using a physical picture to describe a spiritual reality. I think this may be a bad use of the term, but we often refer to the physical reality as the literal meaning and the idea as the metaphor. We tend to think the physical is more real than the spiritual, but Jesus seems to think the spiritual is more real, more solid, more permanent, more firm than this entire world. Jesus seemed to think that this whole world was the metaphor. And what it meant was truly solid and eternal. Like gold buried in some field. Like a pearl that you might find in an oyster buried in the mud. Like the meaning hidden in each and every day. And, and, and so, if you don't pay attention, you could live your life never having lived your life. It would be like just one empty calendar day after another and after another and after another. But if you sought first his kingdom and his righteousness, you could live your life eternally, having each day like filled with meaning, eternal life. Well, Jesus seemed to think that everything is a metaphor. So you're living in a parable and the days of your life form a story and God writes that story and you are a character in your own story. God writes your story. And everybody thinks, oh, that's such a nice thought. We think that means that God gives us a list of instructions on how to write a good story. If we take that knowledge of the good and use it to write our story, we say with false humility, <laughs> God wrote the story. And if we screw up, we say, oh, if only, if only, if only I had let God write my story. 
But you see, something utterly amazing and fascinating happens in Matthew 16, verses five through 12. At first, it seems like a contradiction, but one day I think we'll see, uh, one eternal day, I think we'll see that, oh, it, it's, it's not. The, the disciples, this is, this is the fascinating that happen, thing that happens, the, the disciples screw up. They forgot the bread. Unlike so many levels, they, for, they forgot they forgot the bread. They think, if only I had remembered the bread. Like you think, if only I had remembered the car keys and wouldn't have missed that appointment. If only I would have looked in the rearview mirror as I backed up and not backed up over my own child. If only, if only, if only. See, they screwed up. And Jesus acts as if God had never stopped writing the story. In fact, once Jesus enters the picture, he gives new meaning to all their empty time spent worrying about bread and turns that fact into the gospel of Matthew that we just read today 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. That's amazing. He redeems their time. They thought, if only, if only, and Jesus acts as if if only, is actually um, not. As if there is no if only. As if in the words of Paul, God accomplishes all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, God does all things. So anything that God doesn't do isn't actually done. 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul writes that he missed an open door because he was worried about Timothy. Worry is sin. He screwed up, but the next sentence he writes is, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. God never stopped writing the story, as if where sin increased, grace just abounded all the more, and that's the story. Adam and Eve screwed up. Can you think of a bigger screw up than that? But did God stop writing the story? We sinners, oh gosh, we all screwed up. We crucified Christ on a tree in a garden. Did God ever stop writing the story? No, that is the story from the foundation of the world, the gospel of Jesus the Christ. I, I'm just pointing out that, well, I'm probably not just pointing out, but I want you to get this, that, that Jesus seemed to think we're living in a parable. And so number one, all creation is a metaphor. Number two, God writes the story. Number three, everything happens for a reason. And that may sound nice at first. Like, oh, what a wonderful idea. That's, that's nice. But actually, I think there may be nothing more offensive than that. For a suffering and sorrow soon revealed to us, if everything happens for a reason, well, it's definitely not our reason because it's not what I would have chosen. See, every time I say, if only, if only, if only, what am I saying? If only I'd remembered the bread. If only I'd gotten a checkup. If only Eve hadn't taken that fruit from the tree. If only Jesus hadn't gone up to Jerusalem and got himself crucified. Whenever I say, if only, aren't I saying, God's reasons are not my reasons? I don't comprehend God's reason or trust God's reason. 
In fact, I think I may hate God's reason. Whatever that is. The biblical word for reason is logos. And Jesus is the logos in flesh whom we nailed to that tree. Now, if your head is spinning, it, it should be. But, but for now, just ponder this one idea. You're living in a parable, a story that God is telling for a reason. Jesus told stories, and we are a story Jesus told and is, is telling. So maybe the way we read parables is the way that we should live our lives. If, if we trust that the author is good, we do these things. Number one, we pay attention. Why? Because we know that everything happens for a reason, and we trust that the author is good, and so his reason must be good. C.S. Lewis wrote this, where a God who is totally purposive and totally foreseen acts upon a nature which is totally interlocked, there can be no accidents or loose ends, nothing whatever of which we can safely use the word merely. Nothing merely happens in a parable, for the author picks every detail for a reason, and so even though it can be disheartening, even though it can be terrifying, you see, there's a reason that the prodigal squandered his inheritance in the distant country and ended up in, the, in that, that pigsty with the pigs. There's a reason that the dogs lick Lazarus' sores. There's a reason that the master shuts the door on sons of the kingdom. There's a reason that the king casts the one man without a wedding garment into the outer darkness and yet calls him friend. Pay attention. Be curious. The French mystic Jean Guion writes this. You must utterly believe that the circumstances of your life, that is every minute of your life, as well as the whole course of your life, anything, yes, everything that happens, have all come to you by his will and by his permission. You must utterly believe that everything that has happened to you is from God and is exactly what you need. Well, if the author is good, you pay attention. You, you live your life with your eyes open. You don't deny, repress, or hide from the truth because you know everything happens for a reason. And yet, you expect confusion because the author's reason is not your reason. That's why he's telling the story, to give you new reason, new Meaning. You know, sometimes I've preached, and, and I know this is hard to believe, but sometimes I've pre preached, and people have said to me, um, that was confusing. <laughs> and, and God uh, did not give us a spirit of confusion. So therefore, what you said did, did not come from God. And I just want to, I don't do it, but I just want to grab them and go, have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read your Bible? You know, just about every time God speaks, people seem to get pretty confused. Moses seemed fairly confused when that bush started talking to him and telling him to just do some crazy, crazy stuff. Paul seemed pretty confused by that burning light on the road to Damascus. Gosh, Jesus would show up and he would just tell a bunch of people um, some parable. They would be utterly confused, utterly baffled. Then he'd just walk away. They couldn't comprehend his meaning. But over time, his meaning would comprehend them. That's how stories work. You lose your life in the story 
and then find the story in your life. It changes you. Remember how the Word of God met Jacob by the river Jabbok on the edge of the promised land? Met him in the middle of the night and just beat the hell out of him. The God-man, the Word of God. I mean, I think that might have been a little bit confusing. Jacob was confused, but he wrestled all night long. And in the morning, the God-man blessed him, gave him new meaning. No longer will you be called Jacob the liar. You will now be called Israel. It means wrestles with God. You will be confused. And like Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You see, he doesn't rapture us out of tribulation. He wrestles us in the midst of tribulation. You know, if God is really the creator and therefore the author of your story, will you really only wrestle with one person in this life? And that person is the word of God. And he's not confused. But we are dreadfully confused. So keep wrestling is what I'm saying. Keep wrestling, keep seeking, keep searching, keep asking, what does it mean? What does he mean? Or even better, what do you mean? What do you mean? See, it's never just bread or wine. It's never just a mustard seed or a fishing net. It's never just sex. It's never just a house, it's never just a bride. You know, it was never just a tabernacle or a temple or the blood of sheep and goats. Hebrews 9.9, it was a parabole. It was about something else. And it was never, it was never just a man hanging on a tree in the garden where Christ was crucified. It was the word of God, fully man, fully man, but not just man. And he truly died, but that's not the end of the story. Harry Blumiers wrote this. If there is one word the Christian secretly wants to use to describe the unbeliever's outlook, it is literal. Like a child who takes the play for reality. So stop taking this world so literally. Jesus literally died, but, but, but that, 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 was, that was not an act. Jesus literally died on the cross, but the meaning is life, and it's eternal. He is eternal, and he is the reason. Now, I dare you. I dare you to think of anything more confusing, more painful, or more horrid than what Jesus endured on that cross. But is there a better meaning than that which Jesus reveals on that cross. The, the, the heart of God was revealed on that cross. The, the word of God was revealed on that cross. The logos of God was revealed on that cross. The logic of love was revealed on that cross. The reason for all things, Jesus. Jesus is the meaning of every parable. And Jesus is the meaning of your life. He is the reason. But maybe not your reason. And by that I mean the one that you choose. Like I was saying, if you think the author is good, you trust his reason, the plot. So you pay attention, 
you expect confusion, you keep asking what does it mean, and number four, you surrender your meaning to the author's meaning and receive new meaning. But if you don't trust the author and his meaning, what will happen? Well, you'll stop reading. And if you think you have to read, you'll change the meaning. You won't read this sign. You'll take uh, control of the sign, cut it up, and give it new meaning. The Sadducees and Pharisees took Jesus, cut him up and crucified, and tried to give him their own meaning. That is, we write the story, not you. You know, every time you sin, that's what you're doing. You're crucifying the word of love. You're declaring, I write the story, not you, not love, and not the word of love. Maybe the Sadducees and Pharisees couldn't read the signs because all the signs meant love. And love is not something you comprehend. Love is someone that comprehends you. So you can't take it like fruit on some tree. You must receive it like a bride receives her bridegroom. Verse 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Next verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say, you know, the experts say, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but... And this is like what really seems to matter to him. But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Did you get that? Peter discerned the signs of the times. The expert couldn't, but the fisherman did because he knew Jesus. Or should I say Jesus knew him? He was in his boat. Jesus wasn't a law he could control. Jesus was a living presence that filled each moment, like Kairos fills Kronos, like a constant prayer. Communion. And yet even Peter didn't trust entirely or even much at all. In just a few verses, Jesus will explain that he must go up to Jerusalem, be killed, and be raised on the third day. That's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah given to the evil and adulterous generation that seeks signs but not what they signify, not what they mean. He said to Peter, I'll be killed and on the third day rise. And Peter rebukes Jesus saying, may it never be. Jesus, that is the wrong meaning. That's the wrong story. That's the wrong plot, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That night Jesus, or the night that Jesus is arrested, a little while later, Peter denies him three times. In other words, Peter screws up in just a massive way, but God never stopped writing his story. Peter wrote himself out of his own story, but God wrote him back into his story, and that's the story. It was always the story. When Peter screwed up, he went back to thinking that for him, it was just about fish. Remember that? 
he went back to being a fisherman. But Jesus rose from the dead, filled him with his spirit, and made him a fisher of men. Nothing wrong with going fishing, but that's not what it's all about. That's not everything. That's not the whole story. That's not the meaning. So where sin had increased, well, grace abounded all the more. Where, where Peter sinned, grace filled it and abounded all the more. Where Peter had made himself a coward, Jesus revealed that God had made him the rock. Eternally the rock. Think about it. If God is the creator and he tells your story with his word, you really only have one life that you can live. And any life other than that one life isn't really life. It's a false life. It's it's a puffed up life. It's an empty life, a false self full of empty time, like empty squares on a calendar. It's a life without meaning, for the meaning is love. And God is love. You see, we've all crucified love. And we've all puffed ourselves up with knowledge. We call it knowledge of love, the love. We've puffed ourselves up with, with knowledge, with pride, shame, and fear. We've all created empty lives, but God is still the author of the story. So yes, we tried to seize control of the plot. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We tried to change the meaning. We tried to seize control of the plot, and so we crucified the plot, and even that, especially that, is the plot. We write ourselves out of God's story, and he's always already written us back into his story, and that's the story. And it's there at that tree that we learn to trust the plot. So where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God floods our lifeless lives with life, eternal life, the life of love. He fills our empty past, present, and future with himself. The meaning of your life is Jesus. And he's revealed in the place you chose not Jesus. Jesus means God is salvation, grace. So the meaning of your life is Jesus. And because he fills up all the empty, puffed up places in our earthen vessel, not only is the meaning of your life Jesus, the meaning of your life is you, the real you. Not that you created with fear, guilt, and shame, the empty you, but the eternal you, filled with the eternal life of Jesus the Christ, who you truly are. So with your life, God is telling you who he is and who you are eternally are, who you truly are, and you are very, very, very good. And by the way, Psalm eighty-nine, thirty-seven. God refers to the moon as his faithful witness in the sky. The moon faithfully reflects his light onto the earth. In Revelation 1, 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. And so that paints quite an incredible picture, doesn't it? April 3rd, 33 AD, the experts in the law puffed up with knowledge, the evil and adulterous generation seeking signs crucified the meaning of all signs. 
They crucified the meaning, and that is the meaning. You can't stop the meaning of God. You can't stop the Word of God. He will accomplish that for which he was sent, the Word of God, and that Word is Jesus, and he is God, is salvation, and that's grace. His life poured out and will fill all things, even, I believe, even the evil and adulterous generation, like Paul said, all Israel will be saved. God writes the story, and Jesus is his faithful witness. I'm saying Jesus is the blood-red moon. And so he took bread, and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. Remember the bread. Remember the bread. Remember the bread. (laughs) And don't beat yourself up for not remembering the bread, okay? Remember the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I reported in that cup. Drink of it, all of you. Maybe every cup's different. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in uh, remembrance of me. And so you're an earthen vessel. Maybe you're even a vessel of wrath. He calls you to this table to become a vessel of grace, a vessel holding grace, to become who you always and most truly are, his creation. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, come to the table, and worship. Bring your empty vessels and let him fill them with meaning.